Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Prosecutors want to limit what former President Trump can discuss publicly about the 2020 election case. How Trump's team responds as he braces for a fourth possible indictment. And in other Trump legal matters, a judge throws out Trump's counterclaim of defamation against E. Jean Carroll, the woman who's suing him for allegedly making defamatory statements during his presidency. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. filing suit against Google and YouTube, claiming they censored his criticisms of the COVID-19 vaccine and Big Pharma. A deadly mid-air collision between two helicopters took the lives of three firemen. The firefighters were responding to a blaze in California. And Chinese and Russian warships were caught too close to the coast of Alaska. And in response, the U.S. sent out destroyers to the region. Severe weather is sweeping across the eastern United States today, bringing damaging winds, torrential downpours, hail and even tornadoes. Hurricane force wind gusts of up to 80 miles an hour are possible as the storms are causing power outages and flight cancellations in several states. The heavy rains are also increasing the risk of flash flooding, particularly in the mid-Atlantic and northeast. Stay informed of potentially hazardous weather in your area by checking the National Weather Service website at weather.gov. What should former President Trump be able to tell the public about the 2020 election indictment? His legal team weighs in today on the Justice Department's attempt to limit what he can talk about. Joining us now live is NTD's Iris Tao. Iris, tell us more about what happened today. Hey, good evening, Steph. You're right. So former President Trump today officially responded to an attempt by the Justice Department to clam down on what he can or cannot share about a 2020 election case. So in this 29-page court document filed just this afternoon, Trump's team wrote that, quote, the government requests the court restrict all documents produced by the government regardless of sensitivity, which is contrary to established law and President Trump's First Amendment rights. Trump's team says that they're now proposing a narrower order which would, quote, shield only genuinely sensitive materials from public view. So Trump's team's latest response comes after federal prosecutors last week requested a protective order which would have restricted what Trump and his team can or cannot share about details in the case such as witness interviews and grand jury materials. Specifically, they cited a, a crude social post by Trump last Friday, which read, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. And prosecutors said that's like a threat, which would have, have a chilling effect on witnesses. But Trump responded this morning saying that if such an order restricting what he can share about the case would infringe upon his First Amendment rights. And Trump's lawyers also responded over this past weekend, vowing to fight back. Watch. The press and the American people in a campaign season have a right to know what the evidence is in this case, provided that this evidence is not protected otherwise. But for whatever reason, these lawyers on the prosecution team want to keep that from the press. And former President Trump this past weekend in a rally also vowed to continue what he's doing and has been speaking. And he also said that the whole indictment against him right now was an attempt to silence him. 
Let's take a listen. I never heard the word indictment. Then all of a sudden, over a period of a couple of weeks, you get four indictments. They do this to try and win an election. And it is an outrageous criminalization of political speech. They're trying to make it illegal to question the results of an election. Meanwhile, the judge in charge of this case says that she might want to hold a hearing specifically on this issue about whether or not to issue a protective order. So it remains to be seen which size request will be granted and, of course, how much the public will be able to learn about the 2020 election case through former President Trump. Steph. Thanks for that update, Iris. And next, a federal judge dismissed former President Trump's counterclaim against E. Jean Carroll today. The judge dismissed Trump's claims that Carroll made false statements that damaged his reputation after her civil case against him. Carroll won a civil case against Trump earlier this year in which she accused him of sexually abusing her in 1996 and then defaming her in 2022. After that verdict, Carroll talked about it on CNN and said that Trump had raped her. Judge Lewis Kaplan said that Trump had not proven that Carroll's statements on CNN were false or not at least substantially true, which is the legal standard. Trump is set to go to trial in January on another defamation lawsuit brought by Carroll for statements he made while president. And turning now to the former president's third indictment. He's calling for the judge in this case to be recused, saying he won't get a fair trial otherwise. For his analysis of these claims, the judge, and the case's outlook, I spoke with senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, Hans von Spakovsky. Hans, thanks so much for joining us. Former President Trump is asking for the Obama-appointed judge presiding over this latest case to be recused. He says there's no way he could get a fair trial. Critics have pointed to Judge Chutkin's track record in sentencing other cases relating to January 6. How do you see it? Oh, I, I think they're right. And I wouldn't just point to the very harsh sentences that she has given to January 6th defendants, uh, often uh, larger, uh, better, worse sentences than DOJ recommended. But uh, keep in mind that uh, she was a partner in the same law firm where Hunter Biden worked for several years. Not only that, but she is a, uh, was a political donor to Barack Obama. Um, some of the statements also, that she has made when sentencing the January 6th um, defendants, I think, raise serious questions about uh, her potential bias in this case. And I want to turn now to look at special counsel Jack Smith asking Judge Chutkin to issue a protective order in response to Trump's social media post, which says, if you go after me, I'm coming after you, which Smith said could have a chilling effect on witnesses. Would you agree with that? No, I wouldn't. Apparently, uh, that um, uh, social media post of the president was in relation to other people coming after him on social media, not the witnesses uh, involved in this case. Frankly, uh, I would be more concerned about uh, Smith and the Justice Department, frankly, given their uh, abusive history of potentially trying to intimidate and threaten any witnesses that might be willing to testify in favor of the president. Um, this has been a particularly hollow indictment uh, filed against the president. I think it has tremendous problems and should never have been filed. So uh, my mistrust actually is of the Justice Department, not of uh, President Trump and his lawyers.
And do you have any specific examples in terms of the track record that you are pointing to here? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, just one example. If you look at this indictment, uh, the co-conspirators who are unindicted uh, are all uh, lawyers who gave advice to the president. Uh, that is a clear violation of the rules governing uh, lawyers and communications with their clients. Clients like uh, Donald Trump are entitled to rely on what uh, their lawyers are telling them. And to make them uh, unindicted co-conspirators is a threat to our entire justice system and, frankly, a threat to those lawyers who are doing their jobs, zealously trying to uh, represent their clients. I, I think that shows just how far Jack Smith is willing to go to win, uh, regardless of real justice in the case. Now, Trump wants the Supreme Court to intercede in this third indictment. How likely is it that this case will go to the Supreme Court, do you think, and how do you expect that it could play out there? Well, I don't think they'll intercede now, but uh, I, I also have to say I agree with Trump that uh, there's no way he can get a fair trial in D.C. Uh, the, the juries here, there's, there's no way he's going to get an unbiased jury in a district that in the last election, 92 percent of the people voted for Joe Biden. Um, he's going to have to appeal any adverse decision against him. And I do think it's going to go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court because of some very important constitutional issues that are present in this case, the first indictment ever of a former president of the United States. And once it, if it does reach the Supreme Court, right. how do you expect that it will play out there? I actually think what might happen in this case is uh, the Supreme Court may throw out any convictions um, that may happen in the district court uh, case. I think this might be very similar to what happened with former Virginia Governor Robert McDonald. He also was prosecuted by this same uh, DOJ lawyer, Jack Smith. Uh, he appealed his case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court unanimously throughout Jack Smith's case. Hans von Spakovsky, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is suing Google for censoring him on YouTube. NTD legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more. Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. recently announcing his lawsuit against Google in a social media post. Kennedy said in a statement that Google and its subsidiary, YouTube, worked with the federal government to develop and enforce misinformation policies to censor the government's political opponents, including Kennedy. The complaint alleges that pressure to censor people online has increased under the Biden administration. It cites the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Act of 2018 as a major link between the federal government and big tech companies. The agency states on its website that its mission requires effective coordination and collaboration among a broad spectrum of government and private sector organizations. The suit alleges censorship by YouTube and Google is unlawful because it violates the First Amendment and that the companies will likely continue to use misinformation policies to censor Kennedy's statements in the 2024 presidential campaign. Kennedy often criticizes the negative health effects of COVID-19 vaccinations, the suit says. 
and questions the pharmaceutical industry over vaccines. Kennedy has also claimed that the industry falsely markets certain drugs. And they killed uh, between 120,000, 500,000 people with a, a drug they marketed as a headache medicine and a, you know, arthritis medicine when they knew that it caused heart attacks. He said pharmaceutical drugs are the third largest killer of Americans. The lawsuit states that YouTube often removes videos of his comments from its public platform. For example, it says YouTube removed videos of Kennedy's interviews with Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan. Although YouTube has cited its medical misinformation policies to justify these decisions, it has removed the entire video of Mr. Kennedy speaking, the suit says. And it says the platform has removed all of his comments about the environment, such as efforts to clean up the Hudson River. During his interview with Joe Rogan in June, Kennedy talked about the Hudson River. And I went to work for a commercial fisherman on the Hudson River. Uh, we began suing polluters. They purchased a patrol boat and began patrolling the river. And we sued. I, and while I was there, we sued over 500 polluters. At the conclusion of the complaint, Kennedy asked the court to order YouTube to restore all videos of his political speech that it removed during the 2024 presidential campaign, to declare that the companies violated the First Amendment, and to declare YouTube's medical misinformation policies unconstitutional. Steph? Thanks, Arlene. And next, did the FBI lie about meeting with social media companies over the Hunter Biden laptop story? That's what House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan claimed in a series of posts on X, formerly Twitter. The congressman posted a document that describes a meeting between FBI agents and representatives of Twitter and Facebook over the Hunter Biden laptop story. The meeting took place in October 2020 when the story first broke. One of the posts reads, when Twitter asked if the laptop was real, an FBI agent said yes, but a second FBI agent, a lawyer, jumped in, cut him off, and said no further comment. Jordan said one of the agents in the meeting was Elvis Chan, who gave sworn testimony about government censorship last year. During his deposition, Chan said he wasn't part of any other meetings with big tech companies and had no internal knowledge of the Hunter Biden laptop investigation. Jordan said the committee has recently obtained an internal Facebook document and said it shows that Chan had a secret follow-up call with Facebook about the Hunter Biden laptop story the day after it broke. And Senator Dianne Feinstein has transferred her power of attorney to her daughter. This comes amid the family's financial struggles and the 90-year-old's ailing health. Senator Dianne Feinstein has ceded her power of attorney to her 66-year-old daughter, Katherine Feinstein. That means Katherine can now act on behalf of Senator Feinstein on all legal or financial matters. This announcement comes amidst the family's finance fight. Katherine has filed two lawsuits on behalf of her mother to access the senator's late husband, Richard Blum's estate. According to the lawsuit, Feinstein is trying to sell the house to fund her ongoing medical treatments. The second lawsuit alleges that two other trustees in Blum's estate, a longtime lawyer and a business partner, withheld Blum's life insurance proceeds from Feinstein. But their attorney says the pair never withheld those funds. Since her absence earlier this year due to health complications, Feinstein's ability to remain in office has been increasingly doubted. Last week, the 90-year-old was also caught apparently confused during a roll call vote. She read her remarks instead of saying, I. A staffer had to prompt her.
Four years and nine months. That's the sentence for the fourth officer present during the death of George Floyd. It's for aiding and abetting manslaughter. Former Minneapolis police officer Tu Tao held back bystanders, while three other officers restrained Floyd, who died after one of the officers knelt on his neck. Tao testified that he was acting as a human traffic cone and didn't try to hurt anyone. The judge said that he had hoped for more remorse from Tao and ordered a longer sentence than the prosecution required. The officer who knelt on Floyd is serving 22 and a half years, while the other two are serving three and three and a half years. And three firefighters are dead after mid-air collision between two helicopters. Now investigators are looking into the cause. And TD's Christina Corona has more on that story. On Sunday, three people were killed after two firefighting helicopters collided in Southern California while fighting a blaze in Riverside County around 6.30 p.m. During a news conference Monday, officials said a total of six aircrafts were in the air responding to the fire in Cabazon. Cal Fire and Riverside County Fire Department resources uh, were dispatched to a reported structure fire near the intersection of Broadway Street and Esperanza Avenue in the community of Cabazon. Shortly after the arrival of the first engine company, it was reported that the fire had extended into the vegetation and a full wildland fire dispatch was initiated, which included fixed wing and rotary wing aircraft. While engaged in the firefight, two helicopters collided. The first helicopter was able to land safely nearby. Unfortunately, the second helicopter crashed and tragically all three members perished, uh, which included one CAL FIRE division chief, one CAL FIRE fire captain, and one contract pilot. Officials said the second helicopter, which was used for observation, crashed into a hillside after the impact that sparked another four-acre fire. That second fire was eventually extinguished. According to ABC7, authorities confirmed CAL FIRE Division Chief Joff Bischoff, CAL FIRE Captain Tim Rodriguez, and Tony Sosa, a contracted pilot, were killed in the crash. Although this was a tragic event, we are also thankful today that it wasn't worse. The individuals in the first helicopter were able to land safely without incident and no one else was hurt. We think about this and how it affects the families. They have lost, we have lost three great individuals. The National Transportation Safety Board will investigate the cause of the crash between the Bell 407 helicopter and the Sikorsky S-64E helicopter. Christina Corona, NTD News, California. And naval maneuvers off the coast of Alaska. The U.S. Navy deployed four destroyers to the region after spotting Chinese and Russian warships patrolling in nearby waters. NTD's Sam Wang brings us more. A joint naval operation conducted by two major U.S. adversaries kicked off right on Alaska's doorstep. Eleven warships from China and Russia were discovered patrolling near the southwestern coast of Alaska last week. The U.S. Navy soon mobilized aircraft and four destroyers, shadowing them out of the region. Alaskan Senator Dan Sullivan called the scope of the joint Chinese-Russian operation unprecedented and concerning. He added that the U.S. has entered a new era of authoritarian aggression led by Beijing and Moscow. Sullivan also called on Washington to increase the U.S. military presence near Alaska. 
The vessels came close to the Aleutian Islands but remained in international waters. The U.S. Northern Command said that the joint drill wasn't a threat and had been expected for several weeks. Darren Goff, an international military strategist, told NTD that this happened because of incompetent U.S. leadership. Well, I think this moment is chosen because of this administration. If I were them, putting myself in their shoes, I would look at a weak administration and say, now's the time to do something, whatever that may be. The exercise wasn't an isolated incident. Last September, the U.S. Coast Guard discovered seven Chinese and Russian warships near Alaska. Beijing and Moscow have ramped up their alliance since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year. Sam Wong, NTD News. Coming up, America's next infectious diseases expert is named. Who is she and what's her experience? We explore this and more with Dr. Scott Atlas. And a court decides that a college's policy on flyers hurt a student group. Find out more about how the school violated free speech after the break. A new leader of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Jeannie Marazzo, will soon step into the role of director, which Dr. Anthony Fauci left last year. For such a significant position, we turned to Dr. Scott Atlas for his perspectives. Dr. Atlas formally advised the White House Coronavirus Task Force and now serves as a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Dr. Scott Atlas, thank you for joining us again. Now, Dr. Marazzo has been criticized for her statements that she made during COVID relating to death rates and natural immunity that physicians like yourself would say were known to be inaccurate at the time. As someone who worked in the White House during the pandemic and has insight into how things operate, how should the public assess her on this? Well, I think it's very important to look at uh, the record. And the record is very troublesome. Uh, she's someone who uh, had came out very strongly uh, during the pandemic talking about, uh, A, that we didn't know what the risk was to certain populations like children when we did. She said that after the data was in, that healthy children had a minuscule risk. Uh, she advocated uh, after it was known uh, for uh, years, really, that masks were not effective in preventing the spread of or preventing the infection from airborne viruses like influenza and other things that were spread like COVID uh, was as an aerosol. She advocated for masks. She advocated for the false uh, statement that vaccines stop the spread of the infection. So this is a doubling down by the Biden administration on someone who was incorrect right when we need to fix the Institute for Infectious Disease that Anthony Fauci really single-handedly left a horrible legacy on, both in terms of poorly managing the pandemic, denying basic biology, denying fact, persuading the public with, uh, with opinion and filtered information rather than the transparency that we need. And so coming back to Dr. Marazzo, how should she and her agencies handle quickly evolving situations when the public needs information and decisions to be made? Sure. Well, now we're in the situation, as you're alluding to, not only will we have other pandemics, of course, or other health emergencies, but we need to trust the agencies and the research uh, that comes out of these government-funded agencies. So her task really 
uh, is number one, admit she was wrong. That would be the first and very important step in assuring the public that there's actually some uh, humility here, there's some openness, some transparency. The second step and more likely to achieve is more transparency. I think the public needs the information. We're a free society. We're supposed to be persuaded by the facts, by the evidence, and by the truth, not by filtering, not by the collusion with the media that the in, that people like Fauci and Dr. Collins, who edited the NIH, were exposed as having been doing, censoring the process of science by stopping the free debate. We need that to stop. And we need to also prevent sort of the insider's reluctance to make changes. She's an insider. Let's make it very clear. She was the recipient, her institution, the University of Alabama Birmingham, of $325 million per year from the NIH and funding. It's hard to believe that someone with that kind of uh, Conflict of interest, let's say, would be a real uh, honest advocate, but let's hope she's an advocate for truth and honesty and transparency. That's what we need in the new institute director. And now I want to turn to the ongoing controversy over the NIH's grants to the Wuhan laboratory where gain-of-function research was conducted that may have led to this pandemic. Should Dr. Marazzo review the grant-making process to avoid funding potentially risky research in the future? Well, and not only should she review the process, she should come out very vocally against what was done. Because what was done, as you're mentioning here, was more than reviewed and uh, released by the report in June of the GAO, the Office of Accountability of the Government, was in June in that report it's clear that Fauci funded over $2 million worth of research, dangerous research on coronaviruses in the Wuhan lab during the years that it was forbidden, outlawed, banned in the United States. That's really, uh, it seems like that would be illegal. It certainly circumvented the rules. Uh, and I think that that fact needs to be exposed. That's a scandal. The second scandal, really, that she should come out against is that the, the uh, Institute was involved in censoring the process of scientific debate. That's inappropriate and harmful to the public good. And then the final scandal that they're still embroiled in is the malfeasance of using the leverage of the NIH funding on scientists in the community, academic scientists, to falsely say that the origin from the lab was not possible back in 2020 when it mattered. That's also collusion between the institute that she is taking over and science, which was harmful to the public good. If she would insist on transparency and come out on the side of truth in these, uh, in these areas, it would be very reassuring to the public that there's positive change about. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott Atlas, Senior Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution and former advisor for the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Always great to hear your thoughts. Thank you. A win for conservative students in California. A court says a college did discriminate against the group's posters and flyers. And TD's David Lamb spoke with the students' lawyers for more insight. In a case about free speech and censorship in college, the Ninth Circuit Court denied a California community college's appeal on August 4th. Clovis Community College, located in Fresno, California, previously took down students' anti-communist flyers, so the students sued the school in 2022. 
I was really excited that the Ninth Circuit ruled in our favor. Uh, you know, it really struck down the, the arguments that the, the Clovis Community College made to defend its flyer policy. They basically said, we, we can take down whatever speech we want, if it's offensive, if it's inappropriate. Daniel Ortner's team represents Alejandro Flores, who was a student at Clovis Community College and part of the Young Americans for Freedom Club. In November 2021, Flores and other student members obtained approval to post anti-communist flyers from their conservative student organization to bulletin boards inside campus buildings. Clovis policy allowed the school to take down anything that was deemed inappropriate or offensive. When some students complained about the group's flyers, saying it made them uncomfortable, the school took action to remove the flyers. The problem is that the First Amendment protects offensive, inappropriate speech, you know, speech is some deem inappropriate. And it's really subjective. It's in the eye of the beholder what's inappropriate or not. And the government bureaucrats at Clovis can't step in and decide, we want to shut this down. We don't like this speech. They have to allow everyone's speech uh, under the First Amendment. And so you know, they can't choose, pick winners and losers about what speech is allowed or not allowed. And that's what we were able to you know, get the Ninth Circuit to once again reaffirm the importance of those First Amendment rights. At one point, the Clovis president told staff to take down the flyers, saying, quote, if you need a reason, you can let them know that we agreed that they aren't club announcements. So now we go back down to the, to the trial court, and we're going to keep fighting to hold these administrators uh, accountable for what they've done. They blatantly violated student speech rights, uh, and they shouldn't be able to get away with that. Prosecutors want to make sure the school's policy is permanently removed and to seek financial damages for the students. NTD reached out to Clovis Community College for comment. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Coming up, the U.S. has a new round of tanks ready for Ukraine. That's as Russia continues to attack the nation with drones and shells. And tensions in West Africa continue as coup leaders in Niger close its airspace and ignore an ultimatum from nearby countries. That and more after the break. Next, more weapons for Ukraine. Washington is set to soon send a new round of tanks to Kyiv. This comes as Russia is launching a series of attacks in Ukraine. NTD Sam Wang has more. The U.S. military has finished refurbishing the first round of M1A1 tanks for Ukraine, and the first shipment will be going to Europe, where the U.S. Army is training Ukrainians to use them. The tanks could arrive in Ukraine this fall. They're also sending items such as ammunition and other spare parts. In Russia, President Vladimir Putin told head of a state-owned defense conglomerate to ramp up drones production. Producers promised me that they would increase the amount of production. They are keeping up with these promises, but we need to increase production even more. Putin added that domestic drone manufacturers will eventually take over the nation's market once foreign companies leave Russia. And the crossfire in Ukraine continues. Two Russian missile strikes hit several residential buildings in the eastern Ukrainian city of Pokrovsk, leaving five dead four civilians and one emergency service responder. 31 people were also injured. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky released footage showing apartment blocks in ruins with smoke billowing over the rubble. Many on the scene are spotted rescuing those who are trapped underneath. 
First responders are seen rushing an injured person into an ambulance. Zelensky vowed to stop what he called the Russian terror. Pokorovsk wasn't the only city attacked by Russia in the last 24 hours. A woman was killed earlier on Monday when Russian forces shelled the southern Ukrainian city of Kherson, while two others were killed in the Kharkiv region, a border area in northeast Ukraine. Both areas are near the front line. In recent days, Kyiv's military has reported increased Russian attacks in the Kharkiv region. Sam Wang, NTD News. And a close call at the South China Sea with Beijing firing water cannons at a Filipino boat. Washington is reacting. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more on that. Caught on camera, footage showing a Chinese Coast Guard ship firing water cannons at a Filipino boat. The Philippines is a key U.S. ally, and the Chinese ship was blocking the Filipino ship from delivering food supplies to troops on a disputed island. The U.S. is reacting. In a statement, the State Department said the U.S. stands with the Philippines. Washington also pointed out that an armed attack on Philippines public vessels would invoke U.S. response. The Philippine government summoned China's ambassador following the incident. So this was like a um, David versus Goliath situation because there were only two Coast Guard vessels and two Philippine supply boats, boats against six large uh, Coast Guard, Chinese Coast Guard vessels and two Chinese militia vessels and more uh, People's Liberation Army naval vessels um, at near proximity to the area. The South China Sea is situated between China, Vietnam, Cambodia, and the Philippines. A third of global trade passes through this area. But Beijing is trying to claim most of the region. A close call happened just this May when a Chinese jet cut in front of the nose of a U.S. aircraft. And Niger has closed its airspace on Sunday after a key deadline passed. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on developments in the West African nation the site of a recent coup. The move came as coup leaders defied a deadline set by the West African regional bloc ECOWAS to restore the ousted president. They say any attempt to fly over the country will be met with an energetic and immediate response. International airlines diverted flights around the country's airspace on Sunday. Regional tensions have mounted since mutinous soldiers overthrew Niger's democratically elected president nearly two weeks ago. They then detained him and installed General Abdurrahman Chiani as head of state. Chiani was head of the presidential guard and is accused of leading the coup with several members of his unit. The coup is believed to have been triggered by a power struggle between him and the president who was allegedly about to fire him. Defense chiefs of ECOWAS previously agreed on military action, including when and where to strike. That is, if Niger's detained President Mohamed Bazoum was not released and reinstated by Sunday. The bloc's military threat has triggered fears of further conflict in the region. The possible intervention could also be complicated as juntas in neighboring Mali and Burkina Faso vowed to back the Nigerian coup. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, the defending champions are out at the Women's World Cup. We'll look at what went wrong for Team USA. And surfs up in California. Dogs of all breeds and their owners competed in the annual World Dog Surfing Championship. That and more when we come back.
now for your sports news. We're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, the U.S. Women's World Cup team lost to Sweden yesterday. What happened? Well, you know, they ran into a great goalie. Zashira Musevic, she stopped all 11 shots. It was quite a performance. Actually, the Americans, ironically, this was probably their best performance of the tournament. They really attacked and attacked and attacked. Uh, but then, unfortunately, on penalty kicks, they missed a couple. And now, you know, the two-time defending champions are out of the tournament. It's really, it's really an open tournament. Uh, it's, up for, uh, it's up for grabs, I would say, at this point now. And now that this is over, what do you think the future holds for U.S. soccer? Well, Julie Ertz already said this is her last international, so she's done after this. Alex Morgan, she's 34. We're not sure how much longer she's going to play. Megan Rapinoe, she's already said this is her last year doing it. And you really had to feel sorry for her because she missed that last really crucial uh, penalty kick there late in the game. Uh, but this team only scored four goals in four games. They had two shutouts. Uh, that is well below the standard that they've set. So I think there could be some serious wholesale changes coming. And shifting gears to college sports, now that the Pac-12 is down to just four teams, is there any talk of where they'll end up? Well, Cal and Stanford reportedly were discussed by the Big Ten before they added Oregon and Washington. Certainly they line up academically, but I would think if the Big Ten was going to invite them, it would have happened by now. Now, geographically-wise, the, the Big 12 certainly lines up with them now, but for whatever reason, there doesn't seem to be the mutual interest there. That leaves the ACC and the SEC. I don't see them adding them. They're really too far out west, and this isn't UCLA and USC, which have the LA markets, so it's kind of unclear for those two, for sure. Well, how about Oregon State and Washington State? Yeah, there's really no chatter about those two going to a power conference. Most people, me included, think that they're going to probably meet up with the Mountain West Conference. Uh, Mountain West does not pay, of course, what the Pac-12 pays, so they would certainly have to adjust their athletic budget. Uh, but geographically-wise, it seems to be a good fit. Uh, so I think that's the most obvious uh, landing spot for them. And moving on to baseball, where two-thirds of the way through the season, what teams are making their moves right now? Well, you know, right now, the Cubs are making their move. Fifth, they won 15 of their last 19. They've moved up into second place in the NL Central. I think the San Diego Padres, though, I think they're going to make a move in, the last, in these last two months. They have a great lineup. Everybody knows about their lineup. I think, though, if you look at their run differential, they've actually really been very unlucky. Uh, they should probably have a lot more wins at this point. So I think these last two months, they're a team that I think everybody's going to watch uh, to go on a big run. I don't think they're going to catch the Dodgers in first, but they're, they certainly should be able to snag a wild card, I think. Dave Martin, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Steph. And the possible cage fight between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg might be streamed on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. That's according to Elon Musk. He posted on social media that he was lifting weights throughout the day, preparing for the fight. Musk added that all proceeds will go to charity for veterans. The tech moguls have been egging each other into a mixed martial arts match since June. But neither Musk nor Zuckerberg has confirmed whether an agreement has been reached on the fight. When a user on X asked Musk the point of the fight, Musk responded, it's a civilized form of war. And the most elite aviation teams on the planet performed over the weekend at the Boeing Seafair Air Show.
the U.S. Navy Blue Angels, the U.S. Army Golden Knights, Army helicopters, vintage aircraft, everything was there, including NTD. We'll show you what we saw. Elite pilots from the U.S. military performed over the weekend at the Boeing Seafair Air Show. From vintage aircraft, the U.S. Army Golden Knights parachute team, to the U.S. Navy Blue Angels. Well, I'm a huge fan of the Blue Angels. The um, talk about an RV. They're, they're the best of the Navy pilots, and they fly near perfectly. These guys are incredible. This is a huge deterrent around the world. Uh, the rest of the world, you don't see their pilots as bad, as incredible as ours are. You see when they come across, and they're very, very close together doing maneuvers. So they're literally, their head is only three feet from the bottom of the other airplane. And they're doing 600 miles per hour. Imagine that. One little slip and you, you know, it's not good. So they have to concentrate, they have to do it exactly right, and do it exactly right every time. Another key attraction, hydroplanes. A type of boat that skims on the water's surface. This allows it to achieve remarkable speeds, some over 200 miles per hour. I've seen a hydroplane before, so and also there was a turn right over here, so the splashes, it was actually beautiful. Hydroplanes, boy, go down to Thunder Alley once they start up, then uh, you'll get shaken. If that doesn't make you uh, impressed with all that noise and all that engine power, you know, it's really different. The Boeing Seafair Air Show is held annually, usually in Seattle, Washington. In addition to aerial acrobatics, spectators can sometimes talk to the pilots and even enter the planes. This is Dave Martin for NTD News. Surfing dogs were the spotlight this weekend at the annual World Dog Surfing Championships in California. Owners and their talented pups competed for perfect scores as they rode the waves. NTD's Sean Morgan brings us more. We are here at the 2023 World Dog Surfing Championships. This is the fifth time this event has taken place. Let's check out some of the competition. The dogs competed in four weight classes, from small to extra large, as well as a human-dog tandem and a dog-dog tandem category. This Saturday, over a thousand people came to Pacifica to witness this event. There's one dog that has the a mohawk and it matches their owner and boy when they get tandem on that surfboard they're unstoppable. Fan favorite Kentucky Gallahue and his dog Derby are back again competing this year. Derby and I have been surfing for seven years. He's 11 years old. We moved to San Diego uh, seven years ago. Never thought this is something we would be doing. I wanted to learn how to surf. He want, kept following me out there and so I put him on a board. Found out there were competitions and started entering them. <laughs> he also wrote a children's book called The Adventures of Derby California. It's about how Derby and I meet, moved to California and started surfing in Derby, uh, uh, dog surfing competitions. 
Another fan favorite is Dan Nikolaiko with his dog Sherry as they compete this year for their final time. Cherie is partaking, I think, for the fifth time. She won in 2019. Uh, we're hoping to win one more time because she's uh, in the midst of a retirement tour. We've been surfing since 2013. Seeing people get excited, seeing our dogs do this, you know, silly thing, is uh, it means a lot. You know, people walking across the beach going, "Oh, I've followed Cherie for you know so many years, and I'm so happy I get to see her surf." Uh, it's very, very cool. Sherry came first place in the medium dog category. Kentucky and Derby earned second place in the human dog tandem category. In Pacifica, California, Sean Morgan and TD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, remember you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.